Hi, I'm Kyle Dyer and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, November 3rd. We are warming up in Colorado after a cold stretch that hit just as groups of migrants were released from shelters in Denver with nowhere to go. As we sit down this week, Denver Mayor Mike Johnson has led a coalition of other big city mayors to Washington to tell the president that more needs to be done on the federal level to ease the burden on cities that are trying to keep people safe and provide shelter, especially with winter on the way. We have a lot of other topics to discuss as well this week, especially with Election Day just days away. So let me introduce you to our panel. Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward. David Kopel, research director with the Independence Institute. Eric Sonderman, columnist with Colorado Politics, as well as the Denver and Colorado Springs Gazettes, and Attorney Penfield Tate, who has served in both the State House and the State Senate here in Colorado. Welcome. Thank you all for coming. As has been the case many times at this table in recent weeks, talk of the 2024 general election seems to be getting as much attention as what is before us on Election Day this coming Tuesday, Patty. And, of course, the 2020 election, too, which is the talk of Denver this week and nationally because we have the case in court of whether or not Donald Trump can be on the Colorado primary ballot because of the 14th Amendment. I'm sure David will have plenty more to say about that. But I've just been enjoying this clown car of witnesses. It's actually more like a station wagon of witnesses all talking about the Civil War, what insurrection really means, what Donald Trump said, it's been fascinating viewing. We won't know until, oh, probably Thanksgiving, whether or not the judge will rule, but how the judge will rule. But we are going to hear plenty about it because now there's a case in Minnesota, just started yesterday. There are more around the country. Can Donald Trump even be on these ballots? But also, since last week, we hear that Ken Buck is not running again which is fascinating given his most recent vote for the new Speaker of the House, given his clear disdain for what's happened with the Republican Party. And I think on that alone, we can say congratulations for getting out. David. Well, on the legal issues in the Trump case, yeah. there are eminent law professors on both sides of that and a lot of good pro-con arguments. But there's also a simple thing in the case, which is open and shut and Judge Sarah Wallace should have recused herself. Last year, before she became a judge, she made a $100 contribution to a political action committee called the Colorado Turnout Project. The homepage of that political action committee says that January 6th, the riot, says it was an insurrection. And it says that this political action committee, to which she donated, will use the insurrection issue to try to get rid of the remaining Colorado Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives. Her response when this was raised was, prior to yesterday, I was not cognizant of this organization or its mission. It has always been my practice to make contributions to individuals, not political action committees. If she wasn't cognizant of the political action committee, how did the money from her bank account end up in the political action committee's bank account? You know, a key issue at trial is whether that riot is an insurrection or not, legally speaking. And obviously, with that donation, she shows that she's made up her mind on that issue long ago. The Colorado Code of Judicial Conduct is clear. A judge should disqualify herself in a proceeding in which the judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned, including instances where a judge has a personal bias or prejudice concerning a party. Whatever the result, she comes down with, it will be tainted by her refusal to recuse herself and to let a neutral judge decide the case. 
Right. Eric. Lots to unpack here. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what fascinates me most about this trial, I've opined already both on this show and in, in writing, that yes, it was an insurrection. Yes, on its merits, Donald Trump ought to fall under this clause, the prohibition clause. But probably on balance, I don't think it is the remedy this country needs. Ultimately, Trump and Trumpism need to be defeated at the ballot box, as I've said, not the jury box. That said, I don't know how this thing gets resolved and appealed. The judge has said that she will have a decision before Thanksgiving. That's three weeks down the road. Then it goes to the Colorado Supreme Court, and ultimately it's going to get resolved in all likelihood by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, our primary is upcoming on March 5th. I believe those ballots have to get certified at least 60 days ahead of time, so call that you know, essentially the 1st of January. I don't know how you're going to have a Colorado Supreme Court decision and a U.S. Supreme Court decision in a timely way. I'm fascinated as to how that's going to work out. As to Ken Buck, I share Patty's sentiments. Good for Ken Buck for taking a stand. Good for him for realizing there's only so much holding his nose uh, that he could do. We are now going to have two fascinating races in this state, both in districts that should be safe Republican districts. Now the the Boebert District, CD3, and now the Buck District, Congressional District 4. Uh, there are a whole lot of Republicans right now, from Heidi Ganahl to our friend George Brockler to talk show host Deborah Flora to Jerry Sonnenberg, former state legislator, and others um, who are out there as we are taping, uh, I'm sure having coffees and lunches and trying to put together a candidacy. Uh, it will add to the drama of the 2024 election around here. Yes, it will. Hi, Tate. Hey, um, you know, it's interesting. When you look at all of these together, um, I think what it illustrates is how Colorado is not as far left as parts of the country and not as far right as parts of the country. And it's all sort of playing out here. Um, the Trump trial, and David raises a good point about judge impartiality. Everybody wants to see that. Uh, but the reality is someone had to bring this charge against him. Someone had to raise this issue. And it's interesting that it's being done in Colorado. I expect challenging his ability to be on the ballot is going to appear um, in other states as well. But it's also tied to Ken Buck. And, and Patty put it well. I, you know, I, I seldom agreed with a vote he made in his career. But what I never disagreed with was the fact that he was a statesman and he voted what he believed. And he's basically saying, enough junk is enough junk. This is just awful. Um, I can't reconcile his personal ethics with his vote for Johnston to be Speaker of the House, but he's made it clear he's had enough. And that's in sharp contrast to Boebert. I mean, now she's got primary challengers. Former Governor Owens has endorsed her primary opponent. And I often disagreed with Governor Owens when I was in the legislature, but even he said, this is just too far. This is going too far. So it's interesting how all of this is playing out in Colorado. We'll be a bellwether state again. Mm -hmm. And I have to add one thing. So sitting here last week was, unbeknownst to us, a Democratic henchman, which if you look at the Trump mailings about the court case going on right now, is what he has called Krista and the others in Colorado who brought the case. Oh, gosh. Four Republicans, two unaffiliated, but Krista is a Democratic henchman, which we will have to remind her of. Oh, and we see her next. Okay. All right. Now to the current day ballot. Any possible projections or what are you keeping your eye on, David? 
Well, first of all, there's the Denver School Board race, which is very important. And three of the incumbents are running for re-election uh, for what has been the most dysfunctional Denver School Board in anyone's living memory. Student achievements down, the achievement gap is greater than ever, and students understandably don't feel safe in school. So the voters will decide whether they want to uh, reward failure by returning uh, the incumbents. In Aurora, there's, you know, uh, the hard left is working to take over the city council and the, the mayor's office. And, but I think there's an interesting distinction in that. Um, Juan Marcano is a councilman who's running uh, for mayor of, of Aurora. After the dem so-called Democratic Socialists of America, Denver chapter, put out a pro-Hamas statement, he forthrightly resigned from that organization and just did it, and that's it, and, and cut his ties. You know, looking at his twi Twitter feed, I don't agree with him on any issues, I think, except on his decency for cutting himself off uh, from the people who were in favor of killing Jews. Um, in contrast, Allison Combs, another member of Democratic Socialists of America, uh, who's running for city council there, uh, continues on her Twitter and in her public activism to amplify the Hamas line, to say, oh, we need a ceasefire now. Well, there was a ceasefire on October 6th, and then Hamas went in and murdered and tortured and burnt to death over a thousand people. Uh, so I think you have on the far left of in Aurora a real contrast in uh, the character of those two uh, individuals. Mm -hmm. All right. Eric. I'll hit uh, two races is the ones I'm keeping my eye most on. One is the statewide proposition HH that's received a lot of attention, a whole lot of money being spent on both sides of it, mostly by the proponents, but on both sides of it, a late injection of money coming in. I think there is a potential. I, I haven't seen polling on it. I think there's a potential for it to come down. Um, I've seen a lot of discussions among Democrats and people who would ordinarily be in instinctively in favor of this thing on social media, where a lot of them are reserved or opposed to it. And I think if Democrats are of mixed mind, um, it could be in trouble. Uh, Governor Polis has a lot invested in this, and he's been very uh, public in his support of it. Uh, for as powerful and dominant as Jared Polis was in his first term, his second term is off to a somewhat rockier start. If HH goes down, I'm not saying it will, but I think there's a possibility. If it goes down, that would be a second uh, significant blow this year to Governor Polis. And then the second one is the DPS board races. Correct, David, quickly. There are two incumbents running. Tay Anderson uh, is not running. So you have that at-large race which is sort of weird because there's not an incumbent, but there are incumbents both in the Northwest District and the Southeast District. I just don't see how an incumbent gets reelected in the current environment when the, the approval of that board is stuck in the low 20% range, and it makes you wonder who those 20% even are that approve of that performance. But I think those two incumbents have a, have a tough go of it. Mm -hmm. Let me start with DPS, and I think it's interesting, and I appreciate David um, saying it's an important election. I think it's probably the 
always the most important election we have, but it's the one people pay the least amount of attention to. How our kids get educated or how they fail to get educated is probably the most important thing for maintaining society. Um, I think many people would tell you now that DPS, in the eyes of many, has um, eclipsed RTD as the most dysfunctional governmental unit in the state, which is unfortunate. Um, the elections could not have come at a better time. To Eric's point, the reason incumbents get reelected is the people in that district like that person. They may not like how the entire board performs. It's going to be interesting to see how the incumbents do. One thing about the DPS race that bothers me is, and I'll talk about it in my disgrace, some of the negative advertising there. It's really disturbed me. Um, in terms of H8, I can't tell which way it's going because you've got Republicans and Democrats on both sides of that. The only thing I would offer is what I often say on this issue. Had we not passed Tabor and then started passing all of these workarounds and do-overs and get-arounds, we wouldn't be dealing with any of this stuff if we just let the General Assembly raise taxes and lower taxes every year based on what the economy was doing. But we gave up on that uh, back in the 90s. Finally, Aurora is going to be fascinating because their political dynamic continues to evolve and a lot of infighting. It'll be interesting to see what happens, but I think Mike Kaufman is going to win re-election pretty easily. Patty. Well, and of course, Aurora is not the only town that's electing a new mayor, so we need to pay attention. Boulder, that's going to do a version of ranked cho choice voting. We have a lot of mayor. I think there are 13 mayoral elections. So everybody should be getting out to vote, and at the same time, they're out to vote for their mayors or their own school boards. And bad as DP, well, no one is as bad as DPS, sorry, I couldn't even begin to suggest that, but there are some others that definitely need changes, so there are a lot of issues that are important for people to vote on, so I hope the early returns we're seeing, which are so sparse, does not hold up. People need to go out and vote. Uh, back to DPS, the amount of money being spent on that, I wish we were spending that amount of money on after-school care instead of really bad brochures attacking Kwame Spearman, for example. I think we've got some really good candidates. We don't know who will win, but let's win in a more honorable way. And remember, at this late date, mailing your ballot is no longer an option to have it be counted. You have to drop off your ballot at a polling center or at one of those drop boxes, okay? You have till Tuesday at 7. Isn't it 7 o'clock? Yeah. Okay. All right. This week, President of Colorado Mesa University, John Marshall, posted um, online about the increasing tension on college campuses since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel that killed 1,400 people. John Marshall's statement was one of assurance that his campus in Grand Junction welcomes all and assured safety for all. Eric, this as a student at Cornell in New York, was charged with threats he had made to Jewish students on campus. Well, first off, good for John Marshall. He's an exception, not the rule, when it comes to college presidents these days. We saw at CU uh, in the last couple days where the Ethnic Studies Department uh, putting, put out an outrageous statement uh, basically accusing uh, Israel for defending itself and being guilty of, of genocide. Uh, Phil DeStefano, the chancellor at CU, distanced himself for that. Universities across this country have not distinguished themselves. It's an old rule that if you, equivocation is difficult. If you have nothing to say, maybe instead of trying to do all this both-sidersism, uh, you should just say nothing. What's going on in Israel is horrific. It has much dominated my thinking over the last uh, few weeks. I wrote a column about it that's up and running. Uh, now, it's probably the hardest column I've had to write just in terms of the number of times I started it, stopped it, rewrote it. 
et cetera. Uh, there is no doubt that the Palestinians have gotten the short end of the stick. There is no doubt that Palestinians have legitimate grievances. But there's also no doubt that Israel is a sovereign nation, that it is the only Jewish nation in the world, that it is, only the it is the only democracy, albeit an imperfect democracy, in that part of the world, that there are roughly 17 million Jews total in the world out of you know, a population of 8 billion, uh, and they have a right to a homeland and they have a right to, defeat, to defend themselves. Yes, there needs to be a two-state solution. Ultimately, no Bibi Netanyahu is not the answer. We can go on and on, Kyle, but the anti-Semitism that this has released in this country is frightening, it is shameful, and it worries a whole lot of people that it's been just bubbling there below the surface and all of a sudden now has been given license to rear its uh, ugly, despicable head. Pen. You know, I, I applaud President Marshall for releasing the statement, and it's kind of interesting. Our college campuses have always been sort of a laboratory of dissent and speech. I remember in the 70s, the riots or, or the protest against the Vietnam War, the draft, um, wanting 18-year-olds to be able to vote, particularly since you could be drafted and sent to Vietnam, you ought to be able to vote on who's president or your legislator. So th that, that's always happened on campuses, but what's happening on campuses as I see it reflects what's happening in society is this greater level of intolerance. Um, and it's that you can't just disagree with someone. You have to disagree and punch them in the nose. Uh, or it, it's, it, it's really gotten to the point where it's hard to have some civil discourse. You know, Eric, I agree with what you said, and I'm sure you're going to catch some flack from some people for talking about a two-state solution and a bunch of other things that I think make sense because people are becoming intolerant of different points of view. I don't know how we solve this. It, I, don't know, I don't think it's baked into our DNA. I think it's a function of how our politics have evolved locally, but I also think we're seeing it infect the rest of the globe as well. We've got to figure out a way to tamp down some of the violent response to disagreement on political personal beliefs. That's troublesome. It is very troublesome. Well, as a Cornell grad, I can say their passions always run high at that school. There's a lot of discourse. I went, I went there right after the black students took over the student union. And in this case, what's fascinating is the president dealt well with it pretty quickly. Um, I'm not sure letting people not go to class today was the right thing to do, but it'll give time for tensions to go down. The Palestinian, the leader of the Palestinian student group, I saw her on CNN yesterday, and she was great talking about, we do not agree with what our national group is saying, we are working with the students here. So she was very um, forthright, very concerned about what was going on at the campus, and we've heard this is happening at every campus. But it is not as bad as it was in this case, which looks like one very, very troubled student who maybe had a psychic break. I mean, this is, he was not politically involved in any of these issues and just went, uh, it could have been really disastrous on that campus. So I'm glad he's been, he is now locked up, um, but we can see more of this around mm -hmm. the country because as Penn said, 
tensions are high and maybe the politics isn't everything. You just have people going to their corners. Mm. You know, and, and to your point, Patty, what's interesting is in the 70s during the anti-war protest, what often happened on campuses, it happened at CSU, my alma mater, where um, people believe students of color like burnt down Old Main or other buildings on some college campuses caught fire, but students were reacting to a system and an establishment that they felt was repressing them directly. They weren't necessarily attacking other students, and that seems to be different about what's going on now. Mm -hmm. well, let, let's talk about student safety at CU, where the within hours after the Hamas attack, students held a rally for the extermination of the state of Israel, brought with them posters celebrating the Hamas attacks with a, showing a paraglider with a gun and a Palestinian flag, honoring, extolling the paragliders who came into a music festival for peace and mass murdered over 200 people. Do you feel safe on a campus where students celebrate mass shootings? Should people feel safe on a campus where the Department of Ethnic Studies, more accurately named, the Department of Ethnic Cleansing, has, even after it retracted its original statement, officially continues to align with organizations that want to eradicate the state of Israel, where the head of the sociology department and the head of the graduate, uh, graduate hiring at the sociology department have signed statements to the same effect. CU has an entrenched problem of systemic racism, and I don't see why taxpayer dollars should be going to foment hate and encourage students to support mass shootings. Okay. All right. Uh, we may have just celebrated Halloween this week. But a lot of attention is already being focused on January, when the state legislature will come together for a new session. Already, we're talking about January, Penfield. On Wednesday, we got a look at what Governor Polis wants for his mm -hmm. new budget plan. Well, you know, you talk about January. The day after Halloween, they started putting up all the Christmas displays oh, in stores. So yeah. <laughs> you don't get much break. Um, it, one thing, and, and this is my bias as a former legislator, for our viewers, please remember the governor proposes a budget, but the legislature writes the budget and passes the budget. So the governor's budget is really what we'd like to see. And, and, and I, you know, this governor, I think, has done some really interesting things. $18.4 billion is the largest state budget we've ever had. He proposes to fully fund K-12 education, $136 million for housing and affordable housing investment. The governor's office is saying we're going to do it differently this time. Rather than dictating to local governments what we want as a solution, we're going to partner with them and make money available. It's right for them to acknowledge, because we do have a statewide affordability problem with housing, um, we'll see how it gets implemented. The devil is always um, in, in the details. More money for public safety um, and more money for dealing with um, other um, state economic policy issues. It, I mean, it looks good on paper, um, and the Budget Committee will respectfully read it and toss it on the floor and start writing the budget come January. Okay. All right. 
Well, and as we can see, it's never pretty. Right now in Denver, we're going through it with council members who objected to what Mike Johnston had put forward. That goes, that has to be settled by no November 13th. Mm -hmm. And we will see legislators who are already beginning to pick apart what Polis has suggested. The focus on education was really interesting. He was out yesterday at the top-rated school in Aurora talking about it. So at least he shows he's got some of the math underway. He's figuring out what we have to do to make up for some of the gaps. Um, he also came out on the safe injection site proposal that had been floated and said, I will veto that. So at least we will save time on having a fight about that this session. But I think I read Elizabeth Epps still might consider putting something together. Yeah. Well, but it'll still save some. It's not going anywhere. Okay. Yeah. David. <coughs> I, I hope you're right about that, Patty. The, um, on the safe injection sites, I was in Vancouver earlier this summer and, and stayed just a, a few blocks from their, what they call the safe injection site. You know, there, there's a famous uh, uh, print by William Hogarth from 1751 called Gin Lane, um, showing the, the despair and the misery of the massive amount of gin drinking that was going on in England at the time. And that, that looks like Disneyland compared to what I saw in Vancouver. Blocks and blocks of people passed out on the street. 20-year-old, 30-year-old men walking around hunched over like they were 90 years old from because of the effects of, of drug use. Clearly in, insane people, mentally tortured, walking down the streets, screaming at themselves. People writhing on the ground in just mental agony. It, it was horrible. It's, it's the worst thing. I've, I've never been in a war zone, but I'd say that's, it's the worst thing I've ever seen in life and to say that you want to bring that to Denver I think is is so wrong and ultimately so cruel uh, to people who have terrible problems and need treatment and and not uh, augmentation of their problems mm -hmm. Eric well quickly I'll just you know give kudos to Governor Polis for taking that off the table uh, I might not be quite as dark as, as David on it, but uh, I think the intent behind it or some of the people pushing it have an understandable intent and in some cases even worthy, but it is just bad policy uh, and the uh, ramifications of it would be bad. In terms of the budget, Penfield is absolutely right. Uh, governor proposes, the legislature disposes. This whole idea of funding what has been called the negative factor, which is basically just money that education did not get funded in lean budgetary years. I think this whole negative factor has taken on a life of its own. It's akin that if uh, in a household, if my household goes through a couple lean years, so we cut back on family vacations for two years in a row, and then all of a sudden there's a decent year, that instead of just doing a nice family vacation that year, you get three family vacations to make up for all the years uh, where you weren't able to finance a trip. Uh, there is an insatiable appetite for education dollars among the education lobby. No one argues that quality teachers should not be paid significantly more than what they're currently making, though not every teacher in the system is a high-quality teacher, and there needs to be some differentiation between who deserves that money and not, and mainly there needs to be some proof positive that funding 
correlates to outcomes and achievement and results, and I just haven't seen a heck of a lot of correlation. And, you know, and the other thing, Eric, is we messed up school finance years ago, and so um, we still have huge inequities in different districts and in different schools within the same district, and until we, as a society, figure out um, we need to redo K-12 school finance entirely, we're going to continue to have these situations develop. Okay. Now it is time in our show for the panel to share what they see as a high and low of the week. We'll start with the negative, so we end on the high note, Patty. You can start. Yes, some of these campaigns have not been inspirational, but we should still all remember to vote because look at what a difference it made to vote in 2020, vote in 2022. You've got time. Okay, no naysayers. Uh, millions of people, some of them in Colorado, um, are hoping that the Hamas attacks are the beginning of the final extermination of the Jews. Well, here's a fact check. Hitler tried that last century. So did Amalek over 3,000 years ago. And as Mark Twain observed, the Jew beat them all. All other forces pass, but he remains. We will survive. Okay. Eric. The growing isolationist streak to a scary degree in the Republican Party in this country, it, that, that party is becoming more and more unrecognizable. And at the same time, our attention has been focused on Israel. The war continues to rage in Ukraine. And the way from Donald Trump to J.D. Vance to a growing segment of that party want to completely back away from any American investment or involvement, and I'm not talking about boots on the ground, but support of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government is shameful. Mm. Patty alluded to this earlier. You, you would hope that political campaigns would inspire you to vote for somebody and not against a person, but particularly in a school board race when you're hoping you're modeling for kids. Uh, but some of the mailers that have been put out against Kwame Spearman have just been awful, just awful. And they shouldn't happen in a school board election. At, at all, <laughs> right? All right, something positive. Uh, today is the start of Denver Arts Week, and tomorrow, night at the museums, where you can go to 13 different museums for free, take a shuttle, get out and see all the great things around you. Great idea. A great article in Westward by uh, Gil Asakawa about John Denver, who died 26 years ago in a plane crash. And as the article says, one of the things that made John Denver special, first in Colorado and then globally, was his sincerity. Hmm. This is a good article. Yeah. That was nice. Uh, sitting here next to uh, my friend Penfield just reminds me of how much I've missed sitting by him on this program. And his comment earlier in the show uh, with regard to the Israel-Hamas question is dead on the mark. We have just lost our ability in this country and increasingly throughout the world to disagree without being disagreeable, to handle differences, to be respectful, and to narrow those differences instead of constantly making them bigger and larger. And in this case, to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. One is that Israel can defend itself. Secondly is that Palestinians do have grievances that need to be addressed. Um, thank you, Eric, and I, I agree with you, and to your point, we can fix this, which is the other good piece, and that's, and my shout-out is to, to, to Congressman Ken Buck. I appreciate, as I said before, I seldom agreed with him on policy issues, but I appreciate the fact that he was a statesperson, he voted his conscience in his district, and he was never a firebrand. He just said, this is where I stand, 
and he voted things up or down. And the, the fact that he and I've seen others have kind of reached the point where they're like, I, I got to get out of this game. It's driving me nuts. That worries me because we need good people to run for office. Well, I, it is so great to have you at Pen, Pen, Penfield this week. And I've changed my positive week after sitting here with you guys because there is so much heavy stuff going on right now. And this conversation was great. And I, like, we, I think we show that you can have a conversation, mention different things, um, and listen and take away that and think about it. And so I thank you guys for being awesome, as always. And thank you for watching uh, on your TV or on your device. Don't forget our podcast on Spotify. We will see you next week here on PBS 12.